Now, when you are getting ready to go on a trip, uh, what are some things you might want to think about for just a second? What are some of the things that you normally do? Because I'm sure each of us have our own uh, quirks, if you will, things that we, we want to do as we get ready uh, to, to go on a vacation or maybe it's a business trip or whatever. You're getting ready to go out of town. Uh, you, if it's vacation especially, you probably plan things that you want to do uh, when you get wherever it is that you're going. Uh, you may even map out things that are along the way. If, if you're driving to wherever that is, map out things that you want to stop and see and do as, as you go. Uh, if you have small kids or if you have a small bladder, you probably map out bathroom stops on the way. Um, when you pack, you're going to pack everything that you know that you need to be comfortable while you are while you're going. Your phone charger, maybe a spare battery, uh, whatever it is that you need to to be entertained as you go, or to keep your kids entertained so that they don't turn the car over. Uh, you're probably uh, picking out your favorite snacks for the road. Maybe you set up a, a playlist of all the songs that, that you want to listen to. Or maybe you download a good audiobook that you're going to listen to while you're driving. Uh, you're probably going to get the directions to wherever it is that you're going, and you're going to download them into your navigational device of choice uh, so that you don't get lost along the way. If you're going on a trip you're going to make sure that you have all of your bases covered so that your trip goes well. That being the case, wouldn't it just be the silliest thing if you did all that work to get ready to go and then forgot to put gas in the car? Whether you're flying to your final destination or driving there, you have to have gas in the car to get you either to the airport or to where you're going. And so if you went to all that effort but then realized... I cannot get out of my own driveway because I have failed to make sure that the gas that I needed or that my car needs to be propelled down the road is absent. You'd be really bummed. You'd be bothered that you forgot that, that one detail. See, all those other things, all your planning and all the effort that you put into getting ready for your trip, it, it wouldn't mean a whole lot if you didn't have gas in the car. This morning, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. If you will, look with me there, starting in verse 12. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So there are two things that I think we, we need to see in our text for today. And the first is that grumbling is inconsistent with fearing God and the work that he does in the believer. So with, with verse 12, Paul returns to urging the church regarding their unity despite facing opposition to the gospel. It says, as you have always obeyed, 
work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so basically what he's saying, what he's getting at is, as you have always obeyed, keep on in obedience and be growing in obedience. Keep on keeping on is what he's getting at. So this, this isn't about how someone comes to saving faith. It's about what the person who has saving faith does once they come to that faith in Christ Jesus. They grow in obedience to the words of Christ by constant application of God's word to their life. But here, it doesn't seem like Paul is speaking broadly about what working out your salvation means. Uh, He's not dealing with how it applies to the Christian life on the whole, though it certainly can, and it should be applied to all of life. However, here, Paul seems to be specifically addressing how the Philippians treat other people, especially those in the household of faith. The therefore in in verse 12 is is what clues us in to that this is what Paul has in mind. If we were to go all the way back to uh, chapter 1 in verse 27, he tells them uh, there in chapter 1 that whether he is able to be with them or not, He wanted to hear that they were living worthy of the gospel, meaning simply that they were faithfully living for Jesus. And he says that they would do this, there in chapter 1, by standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Their togetherness, their unity, and having harmony with one another, it was of great importance to Paul. Such that he comes back to it in chapter 2, just a few verses later in verse 2, telling them that it would complete his joy if they were of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He then tells them in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2 to count others more significant than yourselves. And to not only care about their own interest, but also look to the interests of others. And so what this does is it broadens the application of living worthy of the gospel to include those who are outside the family of faith, faithfully displaying neighbor love as commanded by Jesus. I think it's also necessary for us to look at verse 14 because it again focuses on how the Philippians treated others. There he says they would do all things, or they were supposed to do all things without grumbling or disputing. So we need to see that verse 14 is the application of Paul's command in verse 12. Work out your salvation. How do you do that? By not grumbling or disputing. But Paul doesn't just tell the church to continue in obedience. He also tells them the frame of mind that they needed to have while they were trying to live in harmony with others. They needed to fear the Lord, he says. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Now, we have to be clear. The fear that Paul is talking about here is not being afraid that God will suddenly strike you down in a fit of unchecked rage or fear from being uncertain of your escaping his judgment that is to come against sin and sinners. No, Christ Jesus has already taken all of the wrath of God in punishment for the sins of those who repent of their sin and are professing faith in him. So God would actually be unjust if in the end he punished believers for more sins. The the fear of God that 
Paul is talking about here is an attitude of reverence towards God. It is being in awe of His holiness, of His purity, His moral perfection, and recognizing and respecting the power and the authority that He wields over us and over all of creation. So what this means is that where the Philippians were gossiping or slandering someone, or where they were fighting amongst themselves, they were not fearing God. Their awe of Him was absent. But is this just a problem for the Philippians? I don't think so. Think about the last time that you went out to eat, and the service just wasn't what you were expecting or hoping for. Maybe the server was slow getting to your table in order to get your order or or, or maybe get your drinks. Maybe they forgot what you ordered or maybe they even got the order wrong. Maybe it seems like they're spending all of their time at at another table and they're not tending to you while you're waiting on refills. How do you tend to respond when the service that you're paying for is subpar? Do you start making comments to the people at your table about how terrible the service is? Do you get short with the server when they do come to, to your table? You don't make eye contact with them, very short, very curt in every response. Do you complain loudly about the service so that either they or maybe one of their coworkers or even if you're possibly a manager will hear that you're upset? Do you hold back on the tip either tipping less or just not at all as kind of a get back at them for the poor service. Now imagine some of you might be thinking, yeah, but it's their jobs. They, they should be professionals. Okay. But for the follower of Jesus, does the mercy and kindness that you've been shown by God when you didn't deserve it have anything to say about how you treat others? We, we should consider... Do I want my interaction to stand out because of how angry and how rude I was towards them? Or should my interaction with them stand out because of just how weirdly nice I was to them the whole time I was in their restaurant? Perhaps it's it's worth it to consider before we start our grumbling about how we've never seen worse service and how we'll never go there again, that the neighbor love that Christ calls us to has no opt-out clause. Yes, the service may be terrible, and it may be because the server is just lazy, but God calls his people to be concerned with how we can be a conduit of his kindness and his grace to others, not our immediate vindication and maybe having our meal comped. Of course, this extends beyond unmet expectations at a restaurant, right? We grumble about our kids when they make messes or interrupt us while we're doing something. Wives grumble about husbands for not helping out enough at home, or vice versa. Husbands grumble about wives not understanding the pressure that they're under, or vice versa. We complain about bosses that we think are being unfair to us and our, our coworkers, or we complain about our coworkers for their annoying habits. We grumble about school teachers who we feel like are being unfair to our children. And then oftentimes what we do is we mask grumbling by saying, 
Well, I'm just stating the facts, but that's not true. Just stating the facts about something has no motive. It's just telling what happened. Grumbling is complaining, and it comes with anger and with contempt for the person or persons that you're grumbling about. And when you grumble, you're not going to go talk with the person that you're complaining about. No, you'll go talk to anyone and everyone else. Or maybe you'll just think those angry thoughts to yourself, but you don't actually go to the person and have a conversation with them about how you feel about what they did or said. But again, we might say, yeah, but, but sometimes I just need to vent. I'm sorry. Do all things without grumbling doesn't leave room for just needing to vent. See, see here's the thing. When you start grumbling about someone, the problem is not what they did or what they said. Though that may be a problem, the problem that you need to be most concerned about with is when you start grumbling, you do not fear God. So that means that the solution is not just to stop grumbling about people, though we should stop grumbling about people. What actually has to be addressed is that fear and reverent awe of God is lacking. Having said all that, I do not know about you guys, but I find that grumbling comes very easy. I had a friend ask me this week what my second language was. He's Chinese, he's fluent in Mandarin, obviously, but he also speaks very good English, and so he looks at me and just says, well, what's, what second language do you speak? Uh, I don't have one unless you count Blunt County English as its own language, which you probably should. Um, but really, I, I could have told him, you know what, yes, I do speak two languages. I speak English and I speak grumbling. You know, it, it's easy to fall into. Our fallen condition means that there are always going to be people who are difficult to deal with. But our fallen condition also means that grumbling is often to us, going to seem like the most appealing and easiest solution. But that doesn't change the fact that as people of God, we're called to the high standard of not grumbling, period. Do all things without grumbling. So how in the world are we supposed to accomplish something that, being honest, feels impossible? It's like when Paul was standing before uh, those who were trying him, and he's trying to persuade them to become as they are as he is, a follower of Jesus, and they look at him and say, Paul, you're off your rocker. It's almost like we want to look at Paul here and say, Paul, you're crazy. This is impossible. Well, thankfully, Paul tells us in verse 13 that it is not impossible because God is at work in us. It is God first working in the believer that enables us to work out our salvation. It starts with desires. Look again at verse 13. He says, it is God who works in you. To what? To will. That means it is God who works in you to desire to work out your salvation, to want to live a life of obedience to Him. Your ability to be obedient to God in all of life, but especially in reacting to others with gentleness and patience and kindness, is because God has begun a work in you and is continuing to give you the desire to want to obey Him. 
when I choose to be kind to someone who has been less than that to me, it is an outworking of the Spirit's work in me to cause me to want to respond in kindness. Of course, Paul doesn't say that it's just about God's work in us to change our desires. My choosing to be kind or gracious or patient happens because Paul says, it is God who works in you to work. It is God who works in you to empower you to obey. The Spirit of God in us supplies the power of God to act towards others just as He acted towards me. So our ability to be gracious and kind and merciful and patient and understanding towards someone who is causing us frustration or who is is being ungracious and unkind and unloving towards me, that doesn't come from ourselves. We don't just have to tighten up our bootstraps and try harder, work, work a little harder, be better in our effort to be nice to people. No. The ability to be loving towards others no matter what they do, that, that, that comes from God, from His first working in us to supply the desire and the power to love unconditionally as He loves us without condition. That doesn't mean that I'm a robot who God is just causing to do whatever. Paul makes it clear in verse 12 that the believer is responsible for acting in obedience. Verse 13 serves to supply confidence that my ability to obey doesn't rely on myself, but on Him who is working in and through me to accomplish His good purposes in the world. But that means something, too. Just like my grumbling about others says that I do not fear God, it also says that He isn't working in me. And that's a dangerous place to be. And it should cause us to take a long, hard look at how we talk about others. Do you find that you're always complaining about people because they aren't meeting your expectations? If so, your biggest problem is not the people in your life. It's that you need to repent and work out your salvation by His power and with proper reverence of him. So that leads into the second thing that I think we need to see in the text, which is that grumbling and disputes are a hindrance to the local church's public witness. So verse 14 seems to me to kind of act like a swing verse in this passage. So on the one hand, it, it seems evident that work, uh, that do all things without grumbling and complaining, which is there in verse 14, is what Paul meant for the church when he told them to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, like I said a minute ago. It's the application of the command, so those it has to go together with that. But it also seems evident that, that Paul was commanding the church to conduct itself in this way because of the role that it would play, they're doing all things without grumbling and disputing, the role that that would play in distinguishing them and showing them to be the set-apart people of God. So while the context of Philippians 1, 27 through uh, chapter 2, verse 18, it, it calls for application to how believers interact with people who are outside the family of faith, Paul is especially concerned for how those in the church treated one another. 
And, and we know that Paul wasn't just bringing this up because he was concerned that the opposition that the Philippians were facing uh, for their faith would eventually cause uh, bickering within their faith family, like the, the fires of persecution would cause them to start turning in on themselves. And that's something that might happen, and so he's trying to get in on the front end and warn them preemptively of, of what was to come. No, we actually know that this was already happening within the body at Philippi because of Philippians 4.2. That's where he tells us that's where Paul writes instruction to the church to help two women, Euodia and uh, Sintichi, to agree in the Lord. So we see in verse 15 that Paul's desire for the church was for their conduct to match their status as children of God. So God in Christ has already declared the believer to be blameless and innocent through our faith in Christ who took his sin, our sin upon himself so that we could be made holy, blameless, and innocent before God. That's right out of 2 Corinthians 5.21. Our sin on him, his righteousness on us by grace through faith. However, in the present, our actions and attitudes don't always line up with this declaration about us. That's why Paul says, work out your salvation. You haven't arrived yet. You've got a ways to go. But what this text tells us is that when we are grumbling about one another and fighting amongst ourselves, we are actually acting in a way that is inconsistent with God's declaration of us by faith in Christ. This just isn't what the children of God do. It's not how we treat one another. And, and so this should cause us to stop and think about the things that, that we want to say about those that we worship with on a weekly basis. Sure, there will always be things that you could grumble about and pick fights with people over. But before I start venting my frustrations about things I don't like or things that I don't like that someone said to me, how they said it, I need to ask if the way I'm approaching the situation is consistent with the innocence and the blamelessness that God calls His children to. And you might say, but I'm just concerned with our church being its best at attracting lost people so that they will hear the gospel and believe. And that sounds really good. And yes, we should be concerned about reaching the lost with the gospel. But how does Paul say that we accomplish that? Is it by how well our small groups are run? Or the programs that we offer to youth and children? Or how engaging the sermons are? Or how comfortable the pews are? Or how impressive our facilities are? Is that how a church stands out in a crooked and twisted generation as lights in the world, as he says in 15? No. He says doing all things without grumbling or disputing is how you shine as lights in the world. This echoes the words of Jesus when he says in Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus also says in John 13, 34, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. 
How? If you love one another. Snide and frustrated comments do nothing for our corporate witness in and to the community around us. We could have the best everything, but if we are missing kindness and charity for one another, then it's like we've geared up to go on a trip but forgot to put gas in the car. We've all heard people say that they want nothing to do with Christianity because all Christians do are fight. And we can put the blame back on them. We can say, well, that's a convenient excuse for them. It may be. We can soft pedal on the issue by talking about how, well, you know what, we're just a bunch of sinners trying to figure it out. And that's a true statement. But maybe before we go there, or without ever going there, we just need to take a look in the mirror and feel sorrow over the negative impact that our grumbling and disputing within our churches has had on the public witness of the church. There are enough hurdles for someone to get over when it comes to believing in Jesus. That whole count the cost thing is a big deal. It's hard. So the way they see and hear us acting towards one another should never be one more hurdle that they have to get over. Our interactions with one another with one another must be radically different than what people experience outside the church. See, the, the world outside the walls of the church is not characterized by kindness, by patience, by charity, and by graciousness. You might say, well, yeah, there are nice kind of people out in the world. Sure, there are. But overall, the world is marked by vindictiveness and doing whatever is necessary and at whoever's expense to ensure that I am achieving maximum happiness for myself. So it should be truly shocking when an unbeliever is introduced to a family of faith where the desires for one another's happiness and well-being are more important than my desires for my own. In fact, my desire for my happiness leads me to pursue their happiness over my own. That's what makes me happy. But is that what people normally experience in our churches? Or is that the exception? Behavior that is, that is consistent with being a child of God is to cut out the bickering and the complaining about one another and replace it with grace, with charity, with mercy, with patience, and with kindness towards one another. To a person, the, the members of our Portland team were blown away by the kindness and the respect that the believers from Kaleo, which is the church that we partnered with, the kindness and the respect that they showed to one another and the way that they treated one another. So we had the, the, the chance to go to one of their small groups. They call it missional communities. And at the missional community, a, a question was raised and an answer was given. And several people in the, in the missional community uh, disagreed with the response from their group member. It was one of their folks that gave the answer. Uh, but rather than the discussion uh, getting progressively more frustrated and people getting more irritated and the individual who was being disagreed with, like getting all defensive and fighting back, it was marked by patience and by grace and by charity. Everyone who disagreed did so with gentleness and respect. And the guy who made the statement received their correction with humility. 
He kept repeatedly saying, thank you, thank you for helping me see. Thank you for helping me think through this. Kaleo is a place where the majority of the culture is in opposition to what they as a Christian church stand for. They're in a place like the church at Philippi where the stress from opposition could easily produce tension and backbiting, but instead it seems to be producing gentleness and kindness. And yet, too many churches in our context where there is little to no cultural pressure on churches are constantly dealing with infighting and complaining about one another, which is terribly unfortunate. Working out our salvation within the context of the church can mean a lot of things, but in the context of this passage, what that might mean is seeking out the person who said something that I disagree with to just talk about the Scriptures and why they see it the way that they do and for that conversation to be smothered, covered, and chunked by grace. Being charitable, you know, working out our salvation within the context of the church, it might mean being charitable towards the person leading your small group, finding ways to encourage them and thank them for giving of their time to seek your good. It might mean being patient with the person whose personality tends to get on your nerves. It might mean shutting down gossip about another member of the church encouraging the one who has the complaint to instead go and speak with the person with whom they have an issue. In verse 16, Paul tells the Philippians that to do everything without grumbling and disputing was how they held fast to the word of life. It was evident, evidence that they were holding fast to God's word. And it would result in their vindication and in Paul's vindication on the day of the Lord. And he shows that up, and he follows that up in verse 17 by seeming to say that even if his service to them was only meant to, to complement the sacrificial offering that was their own obedience to Christ, he would still be filled with joy. He's modeling for them what he's teaching them. He's willing to suffer for their sake, for their good, if it would aid in their lives being lived out as a sacrifice to Christ Jesus. It was his joy to do this. And so he urged them in verse 18 to find their own joy in the giving of themselves to see others live for the glory and the exaltation of Christ. The love that God has extended to us in Christ Jesus through the forgiving of our sins, it demands that we extend this love to others. Joyfully putting the needs of others above our own for the sake of their knowing and growing in Christ. Mercifully, He works in us to give us the desire and the power to love sacrificially as He has loved us. We're not going to get this right all the time. And God's grace is for us in those moments too. But not just to forgive your sins. Not just so that you can walk away saying, well, I blew it there. Thank goodness God is good and I'll just try better next time. No. God's grace is for us in those moments. 
where we snap at someone, where we grumble behind their back, where we get in a dispute with someone over something. God's grace is for us in those moments to empower us to go to the person that we have wronged and ask for their forgiveness. That is working out your salvation, is owning up to where you have sinned against someone and going to make it right in the power of the Lord. And in this, we have one more opportunity for our community to see us bear witness to the gospel as we extend forgiveness and grace to one another over and over as God does for us in Christ Jesus. It might make you think of the interaction between Peter and Jesus where Peter, trying to be pious, is like, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my, my brother? As many as 70? That many? I have to do it a lot, right? But he puts a cap on it. And Jesus is like, no. Over and over and over. That's how the people of God, that's how children of God relate to one another. And we should be Intense, for lack of a better word, about doing this. Very intentional about doing this. Because Christ himself has said, what kind of worship do I want? I want pure worship. And so if you have an issue with your brother, and you come to the altar and realize that it hasn't been righted, I don't want you to worship me and then go figure it out with them. That's not worshiping me. To worship me is to go and figure it out, to work it out with them, and then come back and make your offering. That's the worship that he wants from us. That's how children of God worship him. That's how children of God work out their salvation. We don't have to figure out how, though, to maintain harmony within our church family all on our own. God aids us in this, giving us all that we need to be at peace with one another through his Holy Spirit. And we can be confident that he will empower our unity because by it, the community sees his goodness. By it, he's glorified when they see and recognize he is at work in his people. But on the flip side, when our gathering together is marked by, if it's filled with complaining and infighting, it indicates that we are not holding fast to the word of life and that he is not at work in us. And when this is true, it's going to be really difficult to minister to our community in any sort of meaningful way. So church, let's be careful. Let's be intentional. Let's be radical about seeking harmony with one another for the good of our community and ultimately for the praise and the glory of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. God, for your great power, for your mercy to us in Christ Jesus that you forgive us of our sins and you call us children. You make us your own. You bring us into your family. You give us a seat at the table with our brothers and our sisters in the faith with whom we worship you. By your power, you give us the desires to seek unity and by your power, you give us the ability to be united and to experience harmony with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for that. But Lord, we fail time and again to live it out. So God, where we failed, may we be quick to make it right. May we be quick to go to others to apologize and to seek reconciliation out of our desire to walk in repentance towards you, 
out of our desire to continue in, in, in repentance, to continue in faith. Lord, grow and mature our faith. This would be how we conduct ourselves. And that by it, the community around us would not see us, but God, God they would see you. They would see your great power. And that they themselves would repent and they would believe and they would give you the worship that you are due. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus that I pray. Amen. <laughs>